Last week we started a new series of, of messages centering around Jesus' call to, to follow him. We talked a lot about how following Jesus involves so much more than simply taking the name of Jesus, of Christ, that is calling ourselves Christian or saying that we believe that he existed or even going as far as saying that we believe he is the Son of God. All of those things are important, but they don't make you a Christian. The Apostle Paul states very clearly in his letter to the Romans what you need to be saved. In Romans 10 verse 9 he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the crucial issue revolves around the question, Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? Do you genuinely believe in your heart of hearts that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Master and that he has rights over you and your life and that you are not your own? You have been bought at a price. Is Jesus your Lord? Or deep down, if you're really honest with yourself, you find that notion offensive that someone might own you? These are hard questions for us to ask ourselves. However, I believe with all my heart, these are questions the Word of God asks each of us. And these are questions around which our individual, eternal destiny hangs. These are big questions. In fact, I would probably say they, this is the biggest question you will ever ask yourself, is Jesus my Lord? Try to imagine how you would react if someone you knew well, someone about whom there could be no doubt of their true identity. I mean, what I mean is someone you knew personally, intimately. How would you feel if this person returned from the dead? I mean, try to imagine how that would be for you. I mean, obviously there would be the overwhelming joy of seeing this person whom you believe was lost to you somehow now return to you. But just imagine how intently you would listen to their words. Imagine how seriously you would take everything they said to you. This is exactly the situation. Those first disciples, those first followers of Jesus found themselves in. As I said last week, they were going about their everyday lives, lives when an unusual thing happened. A man known to some of them, I mean, he, Jesus seems to have been James and John's first cousin, unknown to others, walked up and just said, come and follow me. And they did. They left everything and followed Jesus. And as they did that, they saw him do the most amazing things. They saw him teach the teachers. He challenged the religious leaders directly to their face, saying amazing, unheard of things, causing people to exclaim, where did he get this from? Who taught him these things? They saw him reach out and touch the untouchables in their society, lepers and tax collectors and, and women with, well, women's issues. They saw him heal sick people, really sick people, people who no one else could heal. They saw him 
help demonize people who no one else could even get close to. They saw him raise the dead. And not just once, a number of times, and it wasn't even as though he only raised strangers from the dead. He even raised one of their closest friends, Lazarus, from the dead. Lazarus. Lazarus, who'd been lying in the tomb for three days. They knew without a shadow of a doubt Jesus was no ordinary man. I mean, some said he was the long-awaited Messiah who would liberate his people from oppression. But he never really quite meshed with their expectations of just what the Messiah would be and do. Those first disciples walked with Jesus through all of this. They saw him restore sight to the blind and give strength to the legs of those who'd never walked. They, They saw him forgive the morally corrupt and give life to those whose life was broken beyond redemption. They saw him turn a handful of food into food for everyone. And they saw him say to the storm, when they were in the midst of the storm, in a sinking boat out on Lake Galilee, be still. And it was still. These guys saw more than anyone the power of Jesus. And they believed he was the one, the one who would restore the fortunes of the people of God. And then he died. Just like that. Just like that, it was over. Less than a week after he'd entered Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and all the people of Jerusalem were shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David, and they were laying their coats down on the road before him. Less than a week later, There he was, dead, nailed to a Roman cross, and everything had come to nothing. Or so it seemed. I mean, it seemed as though Jesus could do anything, but now he was dead. Of course, we now know that in the moment of his death, Jesus was in fact bringing healing and redemption to the world, but the disciples couldn't have known that then. On that day, all their hopes must have appeared to have been crushed Uh, crashing, just crashing down around them. That would have been a terrible day for those men and women. The following 48 hours or so were spent in confusion and disillusionment. Everything hoped for now appeared gone. Had they spent three years of their lives following a madman? Had they been deceived, tricked, fooled by a cheap con man? Surely not. He could raise people from the dead. He could calm the storm, but then he did nothing about his own demise. But then it happened. Then he came back. He came back to them from the dead. And there was no doubt he had died. They all saw him. They saw him flogged by the Romans and dragged through the streets of Jerusalem, a shattered shell of the man they knew. And they saw him nailed to the cross. And they saw him taken down from that cross. One of them even helped. And they saw him checked by the Jewish and Roman authorities to make sure he was dead. He was dead, 
But now he stood before them alive, back from the dead. And there could be no doubt he really was, is the Son of God. Surely there would be no stopping him now. Now that he'd risen from the dead, surely there would be no stopping him. Yet once again, Jesus absolutely floored them. He wasn't going to do everything they thought he was going, he was going to do. He wasn't going to renew everything just yet. Instead, he gave them one simple, final command and then he left. Rising up before them into heaven, just like that. So what was this one last command? What did Jesus tell his followers to do as they awaited his return? Well, essentially, he told them that it was now their job to finish what he had started. He gave them a great commission. The greatest commission ever given. They were to take the message that Jesus had brought, the message he had lived out in and around Jerusalem and all over Judea and Samaria, and they were to take that message to the very ends of the earth. We read in Matthew 28, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. How do Jesus' words make you feel about your life? Does your life line up with the command of the one who has authority over your life? If you're a Christ follower, that is. Now, as we read through the New Testament, we see God's people working side by side in obedience to Jesus' command. Together they reached out to the people around about them. Together they joined them to themselves. They called them. They said, come and join with us in living a life of obedience to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Together they took Jesus' word seriously and they devoted their lives to doing what Jesus commanded them to do. That is, making disciples and then teaching them to do everything that Jesus had taught them about how they should live. You know, when I read through the New Testament and when I read about the lives of these first disciples, their lives make sense in the light of Jesus' words. Very simply, they were doing what he had called them to do. They were putting all of their effort into completing what Jesus had called them to do. You know, what saddens me is when I look at so many Christians today and I struggle to see any evidence of the Great Commission in their life. You know, some Christians come to church on a Sunday, they sing a handful of songs about Jesus. They listen to a half-hour talk about Jesus. They give some money to Jesus. And that's it. That is the extent of their work towards what Jesus commanded us to do with our one and only life. Or worse, 
they go to a midweek Bible study group year after year after year. And when they go to a trivia night, they know every Bible question that's put to them. They know all the Bible trivia. They love the fellowship of meeting every week and reminding each other just how much God loves them. But they just don't feel ready to engage in the mission Jesus calls them to just yet. Or they were involved in mission many years ago. So long ago that they no longer have any contact with any of those people now, but they retell the story of those glory years. I had someone say to me recently, oh, we did so much work. And they went on and on. And then when I asked them about it, it was in the 50s. What have you done since then? Oh, we've retold the story over and over again. Sadly, often these people are very quick to point out where the pastors are going wrong or why we don't have more people here on a Sunday or why the offerings could be better. So the answer to everything revolves around just having more money. I mean, deep down, when they hear Jesus' words in Matthew 28, they think to themselves, that's why we have pastors. That's what we pay them to do so we don't have to do it. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, said these words. He said, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. And then he says, Our whole life, our whole life should be worthy of, of the calling we have received. What is the calling? The call to follow Jesus. To be like Jesus. To model our life on his life and to come under his authority and rule. And if we then jump down to verse 11 of the same chapter, he said, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service. So the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I want you to notice the role of the pastors and teachers is not to do all the work. Our role is to prepare you, the body of Christ, for works of service so that together we all will work towards fulfilling the Great Commission. I think the problem is that for many of us, we have moved so far away from Jesus' command. We have become so distracted with largely irrelevant things, so entranced with the pleasures of this world that we've lost all frame of reference for what disciple-making actually looks like. So what does it look like? Well, we've got to be very careful when we answer that question. You see, for many of us, discipleship has always been relegated to the realm of a program. The leaders of the church organise a program. We sign up, commit to it for a couple of months, and then we feel we can tick that off. Discipleship? Haven't we done that already? Discipleship?
discipleship. Didn't we do that in 2005? We did that in 1995, remember that. We're not ready to do discipleship for another couple of years. Francis Chan writes, making disciples is far more than a program. It is the mission of our lives. It defines us. A disciple is a disciple maker. At your funeral service, and the more funerals I do, the more I become aware of my own impending doom. It is. Someone once said to me, every year you should climb into a coffin and just remember that's where you're going to end up. I haven't done that, but... (laughs) We're all dying, aren't we? We live in the land of the dying. At your funeral service, people are going to say a lot of things about you. What are they going to say? <laughs> you know, it's interesting when you read, you read the New Testament, we don't know that much about the disciples. Some of them get a real big look in. We know heaps about things Peter did or Paul. But a lot of them, there's one little sentence and it defines their life. Poor old Thomas. Doubting Thomas. You know what struck me during the week as I was reading this? When Jesus said those words, when he gave them the Great Commission, when he ascended to heaven, the disciples who had seen everything, there's a little sentence there that says, but some doubted. I thought, my goodness. He is rising up to heaven before them. Having done everything he's done in the last three years, and some still doubt it. But those great men of faith, those disciples, for a number of them, they got one sentence about their life. He was zealous, he doubted. Some of them, there's just nothing. Silence. The question is, at your funeral, would people say they were passionate about being a follower of Jesus and they were passionate about making disciples? Is disciple-making the mission of your life? Are you constantly looking at who the Lord has placed before you and asking, Lord, how might I reach this person with the gospel? See, in the Great Commission, Jesus used three simple phrases to outline what we need to do to complete his commission. Three simple phrases. They are simple to understand. I would suggest they are somewhat more difficult to live. Really. I mean, these three phrases 
are what we should build our life around. The very first is very simple. Go. He says, because all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to me, go. Don't stay where you are. Don't just remain as you are. Actually move toward another person. Now, Bill Hybels built a whole discipleship program. We did this here at Lake some years ago called Just Walk Across the Room. Now, I'm not suggesting that we do another program, but it's a great title, isn't it? It's one of the things that just stands out to me when I remember that program that we did. Bill said, just look across the room and walk across the room. You have no idea what would happen. You have no idea of the fruit. Now, I look up there and I see Carolyn Sellers sitting up the back. She's the one smiling. You won't mind me telling you this story about how you came here to Lakes, will you? No, is that right? It just occurred to me when I saw Carolyn sitting there. Carolyn's dad passed away and we had the funeral service here. And your sisters were here. And one of them came up to me and she said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, I'm kind of trying to place you, but no, I don't. Really? She said, we came here about eight years ago. My sister and I, we came in here, we listened to a few minutes, and then we walked out. And I'm thinking, yeah, I remember that. I remember thinking, gee, they were obviously upset about something. So I ran out after them. I chased them out across the car park and said, are you okay? Is everything right?" I said, yeah, no, it was great. looks fantastic. We're not interested in coming to church, but it looks great. So I was a bit confused and I said, okay. Well, it was nice having you. We might see you again. What I didn't know was that those two girls, who had no interest in coming to a Christian church at all, went home to their sister who had recently become a Christian and said, that's the church you want to go to because that guy followed us out to the car park. <laughs> now, Carolyn's one of our best scripture teacher, teachers. She has enormous impact in our schools and it's so wonderful to have Carolyn here. But you know what? When I thought back on it, I realised Carolyn was the one who reached out to my friend now, Sean, who was living on the streets. That was a scary day for you, wasn't it? Bringing Sean to church. And we got Sean off the street and we got him into the Oasis Caravan Park and our church blessed Sean so much so that the caravan park management said, yeah, you can be the chaplain here. And now Janine runs a ministry in the caravan park And we bring heaps and heaps of food in there, don't we, every week? And it's like a church plant in the caravan park. So what I'm saying to you is you have no idea what God will do when you do this. (laughs) You go. One step. You see, suddenly this whole world of things opens up where God is doing lots of things in people's lives and it starts with just going across the room. I'm not saying that you need to move to Europe, as some people have. God may call you to do that. But he may call you to just walk across the room and say hello to that person. 
you have no idea. And it'll, it'll be awkward. On Friday night, I'm up here with the kids. Just came up. I wasn't doing anything particularly. All the Ignite kids are here. I was chatting to Darren. I saw one of the dads sitting in the car. Never met him before. But I'd seen him playing guitar on YouTube. Poor guy got such a shock. Knocked on his window. Thought he was in trouble. I don't know what will come of that, but I had a nice little conversation with him. He doesn't come to church, but his daughter comes to youth group. There, the, that's what I'm talking about. Just go. You'll be amazed at what the Lord does for the little we give him. He then said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we baptize someone, we essentially bring them into the fellowship, into this local group of believers. But it's more than that. When someone chooses to be baptized in the name of Jesus, they are identifying publicly with his death and resurrection. In the first century, when you got baptized, it marked you for martyrdom. I want to get baptised. You do realise you may be fed to the lions or burned at the stake in Nero's garden. I want to be baptised. How powerful stuff, isn't it? You know, more people were martyred for Christ in the last hundred years than in the previous 1900. Don't think that's something that happens a long time ago. It's probably not happening for us in Australia, but it is happening in our world. When someone is baptised, they're making a declaration of their choice to follow him and to be like him. They're saying, my old life is fit to be buried. That's why they go down under the water. And as they come up out of the water, they're saying, I am coming up to new life in Christ. That's what it's all about. That new life is the, the life of a disciple, the life of one whose whole world has been turned upside down by the love of Christ. It is the life of one who now self-identifies as a slave of Christ Jesus. I mean, this is why making disciples is hard. This is why it is so difficult. Because if we are going to be real, if we're going to be honest with people, we have to tell them what following Jesus is really all about. Following Jesus means giving up everything which previously mattered to you and realigning your life's priority with his priorities. This is why making disciples is hard. This is why it is difficult. See, not only do you have to tell people something which is 180 degrees out of sync with the ways of the world, not only do you have to bring a message which is offensive to them, something which in our Western, democratic, individualistic mindset world is so offensive. Do you know what the hardest part is about preaching that message to people when you're trying to make disciples? The hardest part is you've got to live it yourself. Because let me tell you, hypocrisy has a stench about it which is very evident. You cannot call people to a lifestyle you have not embraced yourself. This is why making disciples is hard work. This is why it is difficult. 
You have to really want to be like Jesus. You have to really love him. You have to really want to be, you know, be willing for his Holy Spirit to do his work within you, changing you from the inside out, making you one day at a time more and more like Jesus. This is why deciding to follow Jesus is not something you do once. Because it's so jolly hard. Being a disciple of Jesus is something you have to do every single day. I mean, don't get me wrong, once saved, always saved. But deciding to be a follower of Jesus and making disciples is so hard that every day you've got to say, well, Lord, be with me today. Help me just one more day to serve you. Now, I know I'm making it sound dreadful. And I know many of you will probably be upset with me. I know, I know, you want to leave here feeling good about your life. Now, let me just also say, and this should encourage you, following Jesus is all about finding life, true life. From the only one who can give you true life, the very author of life himself, Jesus Christ. That's what he said. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus wants to show us a better way to live. And believe it or not, his desire, he doesn't need us, but his desire is to bring us into his work. Just like a mum or dad brings their little kid into what they're doing. Because it's just fun. His desire is to bring us into his work. He wants us to join with him. He wants us to give him your one and only life in the greatest endeavour in the history of the world. The redemption of all creation. So he says, go. Stop talking about it. Stop theorising about it. Stop criticising those who are already doing it. Get off your backside and actually do something about bringing the good news to a dying world. And then he says, baptise people in my name. In other words, bring them into the family of God and bring them to the point where they know what following Jesus is really all about. Always remember, baptism is the ultimate symbol of what it's all about. It's about dying to your own life, your old life and rise again, rising again to a new life in Christ. It's about identifying with his death and resurrection and his lordship. And then finally, Jesus says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. See, in the same way that baptism is probably more significant than you may have thought at first, teaching people to obey Jesus' commands is actually an enormous task. What Jesus calls each of us to is vast and it will require effort and discipline. Once again, you cannot teach people about obeying Jesus' commands if you aren't there yourself. And that is not a cop-out. Remember, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The command to teach others to obey everything I have commanded you will require a lifetime of devotion from you. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. 
to fulfill the last part of the Great Commission, it will require a lifetime of devotion to two things. The first is the study of the Word of God personally. You have to start there. You have to know what the Word says. You have to know Jesus through his word. And the second one is a commitment to investing your time and energy in the lives of others. And not just once, for the rest of your life. Yet many believers barely open the word of God themselves, let alone commit themselves to sharing what they've learnt with others. You know, many Christians never gather with other believers around the word of God and they wonder why their life doesn't line up with what Jesus calls them to do. As I said to you many times before, you cannot know Jesus apart from his word. If you try to know Jesus apart from his word, you'll create your own Jesus, which inevitably will look a lot like you. Friends, we live in a time and a place where the treasures of God's word are more readily available to us than at any other time in history. It has never been easier for you to access the word of God. On my iPhone, I have 300 translations of the Bible. in 56 languages. If I'm talking to someone who only speaks Spanish and a little English, I can go to the verse in English. With one tap of my finger, I can switch to Spanish. I can then hit play and the word of God will be read out in Spanish to that person at the verse where I'm at. In a matter of seconds, I can listen to any of the great pre preachers in our world today. I can listen to everything John Piper has ever preached in 30 years at his church and I can watch him do it for free. This is the world we live in. You read some stories about people in concentration camps where all they had was the tiniest fragment of one page of the New Testament. Can you believe how they would respond <laughs> I mean, to what we have? And yet we treat it so carelessly. The task of discipleship with Jesus calls us to is a lifelong call which we never finish. Now, I've recently had the joy of marrying two of my children, Brendan and Lauren, and their respective partners, and I'm about to do the same in a couple of months for Gemma. In a way, my task of raising them to adulthood has come to an end. They have left my home, our home, and they have become a new home, in a way. But you know, I'll never stop being their dad. And there are going to be times when I'm going to need to encourage them and guide them and care for them. And over the years, it'll probably swing around, won't it? And they'll eventually be 
wiping my bottom. But that's what discipleship's about. It's exactly the same. Let me ask you, who are your children in the faith? Who are your children in the faith? Who are the people who, you may not have even led them to the Lord, but you walk beside them. That will go on and on and on. I think that's how God wants us to be. That we have people all around us, in a sense. Some have been on the path longer than we have and some less. But the main thing to remember is that whatever stage we're at ourselves, whether we're a relatively young follower of Jesus or whether we've walked with him for decades, the command to go to those who don't know Jesus and to invest our lives in their spiritual growth applies to us. So as usual, the Word of God challenges challenges us to change, doesn't it? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Is he challenging you to put your hand up and say, and I'm not meaning you have to put your hand up now. You can if you want, but I want to get involved in something. Is that what he's saying to you? Now, I want to get involved. I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sick of just coming along and expecting to be fed. I want to serve God and I want to go. I want to take a step towards others, knowing that Jesus goes with me. Remember, he promised that. He said, and surely I am with you to the end of the age. Know that. You do not go alone. He goes with you. I mean, if that is you, please come and tell me or Louise or one of the ministry leaders about what God is saying to you and we can help you work out with God where you might fit best. Or maybe God is challenging you about being baptised. Once again, I'd love to talk to you further about getting baptised. And I know some of you have said, I want to get baptised. We haven't done it yet, mate, but we will. Maybe God is saying that to you. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you about your commitment to living in his word, studying and obeying his word and then sharing that with others. Maybe he's challenging you about joining a small group. You've been putting it off for years where you can meet with other believers and study his word together, a place where you can pray with one another, where you can reach out to others together. Whatever the Lord is saying to you this morning, my prayer is that you would not resist his spirit, that you would respond in obedience and that in doing so, you would indeed find the life he calls us to. Why don't we pray together? And I want to open it up. If you feel the Lord leading you to pray right now for your brothers and sisters, would you stand and lead us in prayer? Let's bow and pray as his people.
Lord, let us not be hard of heart. Lord, I pray we would have soft hearts, willing to be challenged by your word, by your spirit, willing to respond. Lord, I pray a great blessing upon your people here at Lakes. I know so many are are living as fully committed Christ followers. Lord, I pray that every one of us would be a fully committed follower and that you would continue to fill this place with new people seeking life and that together we may bring them into your family and together with your Holy Spirit that we would disciple them and we would teach them about following you and we would indeed walk with these people, walk together for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.